Hey ho, let's go. This is 102.3 WHIVLP-FM, and you are listening to Resistance Radio, and we are broadcasting live from the Ace Hotel in the Three Keys Room. Give it up, y'all. That's right. We got a great house here today. My name is Mark Allendary, and it's a real honor and pleasure to be here uh, and uh, be interviewing somebody that I've known for several years uh, and uh, somebody who's doing some, some great work. Uh, and uh, I think our paths probably ran into one another some time back. Uh, and, then, uh, and then again, uh, more recently, when you came on WHIV. Before I introduce Kevin, let me do it so formally uh, by letting you know that Kevin Caldwell is a New Orleanian who's been fighting for access uh, to cannabis uh, for six years in Louisiana. He's the president and founder of Common Sense NOLA, a grassroots drug policy reform organization, and he has been a voice uh, as, uh, and an activist uh, and a lobbyist uh, for the state capitol. He's also been a public servant for the city of New Orleans, a community activist in his neighborhood, as well as a trainer of law enforcement officers in counterterrorism. That was new for me. I did not know that. You can find more information for his amazing organization, Common Sense NOLA, at commonsensenola.org. Also, Kevin does have a show on WHIV called Common Sense NOLA, which you can tune into every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Y'all, give it up for Kevin here. All right. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here with you today, Dr. Derry. It's an honor uh, to be part of the WHIV family and to be part of the, uh, the voice of progressive thought in Louisiana. And so, you know, we have so many people that either stream or watch on Facebook Live because I, I do do Facebook Live with my show. And we have people from all across the state. And I often hear people say, wow, I wish we heard that kind of voice in Monroe, in Shreveport. Uh, in Baton Rouge, and uh, it's just an honor to be part of the team, and, and you're the, uh, you and Liana are great mama and papa bears to our family. Yeah, you know, I often say it's a good thing I didn't know anything about radio when I started radio, right? <laughs> when, I, when I started WHIV, I didn't know anything about radio, uh, because probably the person who knows about radio would be like, hmm, a show about drug legalization? Now I'm going to skip on that one. I'm like, no, 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 bring them on board. Come on, come on, come on. That Wednesday 1 o'clock slot, perfect for that sort of stuff. But I guess uh, take us, so I'm going to say that, um, because I don't have a strong recollection, but when I was reading your bio, so I know about six or seven years ago, I was working with the ACLU uh, as well as with Jacob Irving, who was a young, I think, 10th grader or 11th grader at that time. He was very young. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was driving out to uh, the state uh, every, God, for, you know, for four weeks, it almost seemed like every other day or so, to fight for uh, the legalization of medical marijuana uh, in the state of Louisiana. And it, uh, I was the doctor that was going toe-to-toe with Jindal's uh, health secretary, uh, and it was, uh, it was at times, uh, uh, it was, you know, she would talk about, oh, you know, something like uh, 9% of people who smoke marijuana become addicted to marijuana. And I'd be like, really? Let's talk about the 91% of people who smoke marijuana and are not addicted to marijuana compared to the 60% of people who use tobacco and are addicted to tobacco. So I think it's even higher than that. It's like more like 70%. And something like 30 to 40% of people who use alcohol and are addicted to alcohol. It's, it's without question a much safer substance when we're talking about uh, public health uh, issues. And then I would always end every talk, because at that time I was still more or less doing emergency medicine, 
And so I would always say that uh, because I was an emergency room doctor and a trauma doc for 10 years, and not a shift would go by uh, that I would work uh, in which I did not see an alcohol-related injury for the night or I didn't see a tobacco-related injury. So alcohol-related injuries, fights, uh, stumbles, trips, falls, MVAs and motor motor vehicle accidents, that sort of stuff. And when you look at tobacco-related injuries, we're looking at, uh, of course, heart attacks, uh, strokes, uh, this sort of stuff, stuff that you would obviously see in a busy ER. But, uh, you know, and I would always end with, but I've never seen an acute case of stonedness. Because when you're acutely stoned, you eat a Twinkie, and then you go to sleep. And they would always end with a chuckle. And, the, and I always always look at the, the lawmakers, and I know that they would never pass it. Uh, and I remember it, was, it took the, uh, the death of one of the um, sheriff's daughters, so the guy who run... Sheriff, Sheriff Newstrom. Sheriff Newstrom, and his daughter died at a very young age in her mid-30s of uh, acute pancreatic cancer. Um, and, uh, and, and I think the bill was even actually named after her. It is the Allison Newstrom Act. That's it, yeah, it's the Allison Newstrom Act. And I remember, like, the first year or two, they were coming. And I'm sure, were you around at this time, or were our paths crossed, or were you there at that time? Or? I was, but uh, I was going through an educational process of... Um, uh, well, as we all go on these journeys, and my journey began with uh, with my, my, my wife's uh, cancer, and luckily she was recovered very well. She's six years uh, clear now with no remission. Congratulations. And thank you. Yes. And, you know, quite simply, when we started to look at the cancer options and, and treatments, you know, you talk to people in other parts of the country who were like, you know, listen, you know, you need to make... Uh, therapeutic cannabis as part of the the health regimen. And, uh, you know, we saw, I really started doing research and luckily enough, we were educated by people who, and really at that point, specifically here in the South, you're talking about holistic healers. Uh, Most of the, the, you know, it it was very interesting when we would speak to the medical professionals uh, and I, I remember bringing in, you know, printing out. Um, oh, hold on. Let me let me see if I can just kind of like jump in the way here. There's not a chance in the world any medical professional is going to recommend, especially six years ago. Now it's a little different. They'll lose their license. Like oh, they they will. I mean, even though the data says one thing and it's very clear. I, I didn't mean to step on your no, feet, no. but I knew where the story was going. I hope that's where it was going. Oh yes. Absolutely. Okay, because it's happened to me a million times, and I was fighting. For, and I, you know, remember HIV, AIDS, you know, AIDS is, uh, is uh, we really should be calling it, uh, you know, stage three HIV, but AIDS is the name. This is when your immune system falls below a certain level. So people who have AIDS wasting syndrome were one of the first people who are eligible for medical marijuana. So I see people with AIDS wasting syndrome, and I can't recommend marijuana, even though, but what's crazy is that technically Louisiana was the third state. 1978. That, right? Was the third state that actually made marijuana legal, but it was the pharmacist that actually blocked it from happening. And, you know, we, we, you know, we, we have to, we have to uh, look at, A, the evolution, and, and you hit on that. The fact that we had to go through the legislative process three times over three decades to actually get what limited program that we have today. And it is quite embarrassing when we look at things regionally and we see that Oklahoma, Arkansas, Florida, all have robust medical cannabis programs that, and their process, well, obviously started way after the 1978 bill, but really 2013-14 when we really started pushing 
uh, medical marijuana at the state capitol. But the main difference is those states all have a ballot initiative process. And in the 1974 Louisiana Constitution, the ability to redress our, our grievances with our government through a ballot initiative was taken away from the citizens of Louisiana. Really? Is, that's a constitutional amendment? It, no, it was part of the 1974 Constitution. Oh, right. That, and it was not included. It, and it was not included for a specific reason because they did not want the citizens to be able to necessarily... Have a voice. Have, well, have a voice, create legislation, create right. the environment that they want their state to be Is in. it possible for us to overturn that? Uh, well, no. What we would need to do is to have uh, a law. And several years ago, we had uh, Rick Gallo from um, Grambling area, a great senator. He's now the uh, president of Grambling University. He put forth a bill to allow for ballot initiatives. It was brutalized in the committee process. And basically, he retired from uh, politics shortly thereafter and went on now the president. What would, so would it be a matter of just getting a bill passed? It would be getting a bill passed, yes. And then the ballot initiative process um, could be done. But we have not found any legislators who are willing to tackle that. Because, right. You know, I mean, once again, you have so many forces that would conspire against that to make sure it could not get through. Got yeah, it. The process. So I, uh, I interrupted you. So you were in the middle of saying that you were going to doctors. You were giving them uh, articles. Paperwork. And I remember I, I specifically downloaded and printed out some reports from the University of Madrid. And I presented them to the oncologist. And the oncologist said, well, this is not um, an American medical report. And I looked at him and I said, sir, the University of Madrid was formed by the, the Moors. In, in you know, the year 800, I said, it predates the United States by almost a 1,000 years. Um, but quite simply, because of the limitations of their Schedule One status of cannabis, um, universities can't do the kind of robust uh, uh, research that they're doing in Israel and that they're doing in Spain and um, throughout Western Europe. You know, I, you know I, I criticize Obama for a lot of things, and uh, one of them uh, of that is that his DA, I think it was the, his DA officer, he selected somebody, he had an opportunity to select somebody that could have had an opportunity uh, to, it, it was, yeah, it was DA, to actually bring marijuana down to what it really should be, which should be a Schedule Four uh, drug. The idea, and that Elastine psilocybin needs to be taken off of that. Uh, that, by the way, as well, but that's a different story. Well, then we can really go into why were these drugs put into the schedules yes. that they were. Yes. And, they, and it was it was political. It was yes, it was Nixon. stifled dissent. Yes, that it was... It was not a medical decision. It was not... Of course. Do you, do you want to talk about that real quickly? Well, I mean, that was I mean a, like... quite simply, uh, they realized that they could not uh, criminalize the anti-war or the civil rights movement. So we're talking about the late 60s, late 60s Vietnam, early this 70s. sort of stuff, right? And then Dr. Timothy Leary, who had been arrested on a cannabis charge, uh, challenged the legality of the Harrison Tax Stamp Act from 1937, which criminalized marijuana sales. And it took it all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court threw out the law. So then within a very short period of time, there was a period of time in 1970 that cannabis was, in theory, legal on a federal level. I mean, we also have to remember there's always replicating, replicating state laws as well. But then the Controlled Substance Act came about. And, I, and it was his chief of staff that later admitted the fact that quite simply yes, indeed. they could not 
criminalize dissent, but they could go after the people who were dissenting with what they were choosing to do uh, to either relax or intoxicate themselves. So people, so essentially, let's just kind of put it into, you're, you're using very nice terms. So the hippies, the rebels, they were getting high, they were taking acid, they were, they, they were taking shrooms, and, and they were able to utilize the, those intoxicants of the time, which people still use now, and, uh, and then uh, use that to criminalize them, essentially. And, and, and it was a very effective tool, because it broke the back of the civil rights movement, it broke the back of the anti-war movement, uh, I mean, luckily, at that point, the war was beginning to scale down. But at the same time, you could also look to see the civil rights movement really began to flounder at that point. And, and that was what the Nixon administration wanted to accomplish. And they were able to successfully accomplish with that. And then we've seen over, as the war on drugs ramped up, uh, specifically once it got to Ronald Reagan. Yeah, so let's jump to, so then, so of course after that, uh, Nixon gets jumped out of office, uh, Ford uh, doesn't do very much, it was Ford, right? Yeah, Gerald Ford, uh, loses, his real, uh, loses his election uh, to, uh, to Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter has four years. I, I, I think he was a great president. I, I think history will look very kindly upon Jimmy Ford. I think next to the presidential election that's coming up in 2020, I think, which is of great import, uh, importance, um, I think that the, um, the election between Reagan and Carter, I think, was a huge uh, election of great importance because I think it significantly shifted the U.S. significantly rightward. Uh, one uh, example of that is that... Uh, on a path, excuse me, on a path that we have been on since then. So, yes, uh, unimpeded, uh, again, thanks to Clinton and thanks to Obama. But again, uh, just for people who don't know this, Jimmy Carter actually had uh, solar panels on the White House that were, uh, and remember, Jimmy Carter's famous like fireside chat where he wore a sweater because he was keeping the heating, uh, uh, the heating low uh, uh, at the White House so as to not utilize fuel because in those days we were still, and as still are, somewhat dependent on Saudi Arabia. And then at that time, Saudi Arabia was using gas prices uh, as a cudgel against uh, Israel uh, and U.S. policies against Israel. But anyway. The, what happened was that Reagan became president, and then the so-called war on drugs became crazy. Well, it, 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 the war on drugs got on steroids. Yes. And, and at that point, we, they, you also began a, a large-scale propaganda campaign to change the way that everyday Americans even construed what their, how they perceived drug use to be. And I think it's important that, that that's really the seeds of where we began to see selective enforcement with, uh, with the drug war. And that is, I mean, whereas people in Studio 54 are doing all sorts of um, usually stimulants. Powder cocaine. <laughs> yes, Bolivian marching powder, as Kinky Friedman calls it. Um, but yet, all of a sudden, you had... The people that were going to prison for that were not the people who went to Studio 54 or the doctors, lawyers. That was all, that was, that was, uh, nobody wanted to enforce those laws um, to them. But however, to people that were not succeeding in the Reagan-esque version of what a productive American was, um, those were the people that the war on drugs really came down the hardest on. So it went from truly political for, for the anti-war, the civil rights movement, to almost being a social engineering project. 
And now 40 years out, or almost 40 years out, now we're seeing and, and people are recognizing the, some people can say unintended consequences. Um, I will say they were very much intended consequences as to what that war on drugs was going to do. And it was, a, it was a war on black people, brown people, and people of um, low econ- socioeconomic status. Thank you for saying that. And because I was about to say, you are talking like a lobbyist. And, uh, you, it, and because I Get was... Get a bourbon in me, and then, my, and then we'll, you know... <laughs> so, which you but, did offer before, thank it, you. <laughs> it, if you're tuned in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV. This is Resistance Radio. We are broadcasting live from the Ace Hotel in the Three Keys room. Give it up, y'all. We have a great audience here today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to have on board WHIV DJ as well as founder uh, and executive director of Common Sense NOLA. More information about Common Sense NOLA can be found at commonsensenola.org. I also want to acknowledge the fact that you spoke about your wife and that this is what gave rise to Common Sense NOLA. Mrs. Caldwell is here in the audience, and I just wanted to acknowledge your presence. Um, So... Let me see if I can kind of take what you said, and, uh, and as somebody who doesn't go, who refuses to go to Baton Rouge anymore, because nothing gets done but for the things that I want to see, let me see if I can rephrase some of the things that you said. It was an out-and-out racist policy that was meant to continue the have and the have-nots. It was a war on the poor. It was definitively a racist policies that were gonna, going into black and brown communities uh, specifically to put people in jail. And when you look at something like Louisiana, when you uh, also eliminate our our non-unanimous jury laws, because there's no question that that was one of the main reasons why we have the highest rates of of, uh, incarcerated people in the world. But when you are looking specifically at the black community, and I often say this, when you look at the the departments of corrections and the people who are in departments of corrections, so these are incarcerated individuals, they do not look like me. Right? They do not look like me. They don't sound like me. These are communities of color. And this was done specifically to keep communities of color isolated uh, and, uh, and, and suppressed. Uh, and, and I think it has, been, it has worked uh, with surgical precision. And I think a large reason why we see a lot of hesitation to reverse that. Like it was this, uh, um, who was the, uh, um, uh, it was the sh- sheriff in like, is there a Cato Parish? There's a Cato yes, Parish. the Shreveport area. Do you, and do you, did you see this thing when uh, after John Bell Edwards uh, passed the policy where he was letting in the non, some of the nonviolent? Uh, I usually have this clip on my computer ready to go. When he's like, they're letting all the good ones go. Who's going to wash our cars? And who's going to, like, did you see that? Um, it's actually, unbelievable. That was, um, and, and you know, it's funny. The hubris of the Louisiana sheriff knows no bounds. Uh, Louisiana sheriffs, for, for people that aren't familiar with, you know, you often hear talk about the New Orleans political machine. You, you know, you, they love to throw that out. The real political machines yes, in Louisiana yes, yes. are the sheriffs and DAs. And something that a lot of people don't know is that sheriffs and DAs across the state of Louisiana, outside of Shreveport, Baton Rouge, and New Orleans, are not civil servants. So they do not have protection, the civil service protection that a normal government worker would have. So within rural parishes, the sheriffs and the DAs are the political machines because they have their whole employee base. You can go up to example up in Northeast Louisiana, where as the state was trying to, once again, trying to save money or rearrange money, specifically under the Jindal area, 
where they were cut, they were closing state prisons and allowing local parish sheriffs to house state inmates at a cheaper rate. And of course, they don't have to provide health services. They don't have to provide educational training. All the things that an incarcerated person is going to most likely need to be able Rights to survive would have. on the on the on the outside. Um, there's a parish, Grant Parish, outside of uh, outside of Monroe took out a 30-year bond to build a large jail. Uh, they began housing a lot of state, um, state inmates. They're being, they're being paid to do so. Oh, absolutely. 24. It up to $28. 28, okay, $28. Um, instead of the $36 that it was costing the state. But they, they then became the largest employer in the parish. The parish took out a 30-year bond, as I said, to build this prison. So basically, the whole parish economy is based upon mass incarceration and, quote-unquote, keeping the hotel full. Um, it's, uh, I, I will tell you, um, bless you, for feeling like you don't have to, to go to the Capitol as much as you have in the past. And we'll see what I, I, see what I, I can't do I, to bring I, you back I, up yeah, from time I mean, to time. I choose not to because they do not... They don't listen. They you know, don't. And, and when you were talking about the DAs, I just want to talk about Royce Duplessis, when, uh, uh, who came on WHIV. He's representative from District... Treme. Treme, District um, uh, State Representative, yeah. He, uh, um, he told the story about the time when uh, J.P. Morrell introduced his, uh, his, his bill for the Constitutional Amendment to reverse the uh, uh, non-unanimous jury. Do, do, are you familiar with this story? No. But a, a, a district attorney came down and, and basically openly admitted, you're, you're taking away our opportunity to put more and more people into jail. It's easier to do it. And it was, such, it was so blatantly racist, the way that uh, uh, Royce, uh, Representative Duplessis, uh, tells the story, that uh, he said that, Instantly, it, it passed out of committee right away because nobody wanted to be associated with that district attorney right there to make a the vote. The DA was from Calcasieu Parish. Yes, and, yes, I think and, he is. Um, That's right. Which, uh, and, it, and it, it, it is sad, and the amount of racism that you see um, at the Capitol, it, it's not that 1960s racism that was rampant in our society. It's a newer, cleaner, prettier version of it. And it is, but in the end, um, to use a more medical term, they still have a virus called racism. And if you put lipstick on a pig, guess what? It's still a pig. Pig, right? Um, and but you know, it, but there was uh, yes, there there were there were moments when um, one, one of my favorite legislators is out of Baton Rouge, Ted James. Um, we we love Ted, and he fights the good fight. And I mean, whether it's uh, cannabis reform or just criminal justice reform in general, he's um, he's in the trenches. He doesn't mind getting his hands dirty. And um, they were they were speaking of something along that term where where oh it was uh, the fact that prisoners that work outside of the jail system are paid between two and eighteen cents an hour. Hold on, I'm sorry. You, you've said cents, but I think you meant dollars, right? No, I said cents. And in fact, two if you go to, to the eighteen capital, cents an hour. An hour. Um, and that, and so they they had somebody from the Department of Corrections that was that was defending this and said, "Oh, well, most of them are just really happy to get out of a cell. They don't care if they get paid." And Ted James turned around and said, "You know, that's funny. My great grandfather worked in a very similar." 
uh, work environment, but we just called it slavery then. And you, and you literally, uh, A, the people with a conscience and a soul, you could see just, you know, the, the wind gets sucked out of them. But the sad thing is to see um, the number of state legislators who just smirked. You know, and, and it's this, yeah, it's the way it is. We, we, during the non-unanimous jury, there was conversations about, hey, this, this policy came out of Reconstruction and Jim Crow. And they had a DA who said, yeah, it came out of Jim Crow and it came out from racism. And um, so what are you going to do about it? And Ted looked up and said, I'm going to change the damn law. That's what I'm going to do about it. Yeah, you're right. And, and he no, did. And, but, you know, it, it, we, we don't have a lot of victories like that that we can celebrate in Louisiana. And even though early voting's over, one of the things that Common Sense NOLA really tries, as, as, as we've been expanding our purview, and I know we started off on one track, but it's getting the population engaged. Uh, Louisiana has their elections on off uh, odd years, so it does not coincide with federal elections. That is a direct attempt to stymie participation. Um, but traditionally, we have about 30% of the eligible voters in Louisiana that choose to vote. And until we can increase that number up to 50, 60%, we're not going to see the changes that so many people want to see. And, and, you know, and I remember talking with a legislator from DeSoto Parish, and um, I, I harassed this, this legislator quite a lot, but he will, I will give him credit. He will always talk to us. And I asked him when we were talking about um, decriminalizing cannabis, I said, well, sir, can I give you the LSU survey data? And he said, okay, well, what's the data say? And I said, the data says 70% of Louisianans um, want to see a simple civil fine um, for possession of cannabis. And he said, well, those numbers sound about right, but you don't need to send it to me because I'm not going to read it. And I said, just out of curiosity, sir, why would you take that approach? And he said, because the problem with polls is they ask everybody. And he said, but you know what? Everybody doesn't vote. He goes, my preacher votes, my mama votes, and my sheriff votes. And he said, and I'll listen to them. And in the end, A, I appreciate his honesty, and he's right. If you can't take the time in an era where you can, where, where you can um, absentee vote, you've got, what, uh, 10 days or a week of uh, early voting. Well, hold on. I'm sorry, Kevin. I, I, I don't – yeah, I actually do mean to, to – uh, let me just say this. It's hard to vote, okay? It's not – I mean, we should be voting on these right now. Okay, like we should be doing digital voting. We should be voting by email. I, I hear what you're saying. It almost sounds like, and, and I don't mean to, like I'm no. doing this lovingly and respectfully. I, I don't want to blame the voter. I, I blame the system. The system is, do, like the voters are only responding. We're coming from the same direction Yes, yes, here. we're coming from the it's same just, place. We're just, it's, we're just verbalizing it yes, differently. Yes, yes. It's the system's fault. It's not, I don't see the vote. Like, how come we don't have a national voting day? You know why? Because they don't want people to vote. You know why they don't want people to vote? When people vote, they have a voice. So conservative policies, right-wing policies, uh, 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 fascist policies, uh, uh, non-people, non-labor, non-healthcare-related policies, they all win 
when very few people show up to the polls. And that's the truth. What we need to do is what we need to do is have a movement that gets as many people out as possible, but doing it is so hard because you, like, I, I lived in Cleveland for five years. That's where I did my residency, right? Um, and uh, uh, Cleveland, not unlike New Orleans, large African-American population. Uh, but in places where, uh, especially during the uh, bush uh, Kerry, uh, uh election, they just shut down polls, all in places that had high rates of, uh, of African-Americans. And then you saw the same thing that happened uh, that uh, when, when Obama was running, that, that they started removing. I mean, obviously, uh, we had the civil rights, right, right, everything that, that Dr. King uh, uh, fought for, right? The, and I can't think of it off the top of my head right now, um, what the uh, Supreme Court reversed, the voting, right, the voting Rights Act. I mean, these were policies, so now we need IDs, right? Now they, they can remove early voting. Now they, instead of having a month to vote, you have a week to vote, right? It, they, they, Sundays was a, a, a big day that the African-American population would go after church. They would get buses, and they would take everybody to the voting polls and, and vote. And a lot of that stuff gets cut, and why do they do that? Because they know it's otherwise very hard to go and vote. Well, you know, and, 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 and you know, you, you hit on a great point, and it's something that, that we've been hitting on our show a little bit. Um, everybody's familiar with the I Have a Dream speech by Dr. King. Um, that's early Dr. King. Yeah, he was a radical. You need, by the time that he had yeah. seen um, trying to affect change in this country, he had very much radicalized, and probably that radicalization led to his assassination. I mean, the last truly progressive candidate we had for president in this country was Bobby Kennedy. Um, and I, I know that there, and, and I, I know there are some progressive candidates running right now. I'm, I'm really speaking historically. Uh, and when Bobby Kennedy got assassinated, I think at that point it really took the wind out of the progressive movement um, for probably 40 years. Uh, that and then, you know, followed up with Nixon and, and Reagan. Um, and I am overjoyed to see uh, a progressive uh, a progressive movement reemerging in this in this country. Uh, you know, but I mean, once again, um, as all revolutionary movements go, though, there's a lot of growing pains involved. Um, and in fact, you know, I, we, I was talking with some uh, political people the other day um, at I was meeting one of the candidates in district 98 and um you know there's almost on the left this litmus test you know you have to be good on this 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 and and there's no variation there's there's no um at least i'll give the the right has all sorts of versions of 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 crazy. yeah they do and you know what the, the They've won thousands of seats while the Democrats have lost. So exactly, I, I don't know. That litmus test seems to work to a certain degree. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. It helps okay, us lose. so yes, I mean, right. So hang on, let me just do this real quick because I, I was get, it, it. You brought me to the next question I was going to ask you, but I do want to get to medical marijuana and I do want to get to harm reduction. Okay. Yes. All right, because I, what I want to do is I want to get us to where we are with medical marijuana and potential legalization. And then I want to spend the rest of the hour talking about harm reduction, okay? But before we do that, let me just say, if you're tuned in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV. This is Resistance Radio. My name is Mark Allendary. I have with me today the executive director and founder of Common Sense NOLA, a uh, organization that advocates for the common sense 
legalization of common sense common sense solutions to 21st century problems more information can be found at commonsensenola.org and we are broadcasting live from the ace hotel from the three keys room we have a live audience with us uh, thank you guys so much so, uh, yes, harm reduction, we'll get right there. So, no. I, it, were you, was he on the radio when I... He's, um, that's uh, JB, my co-host. Got it. Okay, so you were on when uh, I was listening like two weeks ago. Yes. And I was like, I wanted to call in, but WHIV doesn't have a call-in number. <laughs> soon, Doc, yeah. soon. Everybody bugs me about that. All right, so, um, so I voted on Saturday. And my big dilemma was my own personal litmus test against the governor. So I know that you, uh, I checked out your Facebook profile today. I know that you had made uh, a comment or two about it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go through my mental gymnastics. So I, for the last three or four months, uh, was definitively not going to vote for the governor. I had a very hard line in the sand, and reproductive rights was my, that was my litmus test. And as I was walking into that voting booth on Saturday, it all went away. And I actually ended up, uh, uh, and I pulled the lever for Jill Stein twice, right? I mean, I've pulled the, I, I am not, I will vote for other candidates because they, but this one to me made me cringe. But the fact that Hep C uh, and the fact that we're doing all this Hep C, and in fact, sitting in your chair in, in two weeks will be Dr. Rebecca Gee, who's the health secretary, who, uh, who under, under uh, Governor uh, Edwards, uh, who made the whole Hep C project uh, 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 work, I, I, at the last minute, ended up voting and, and pulling the lever for, for Governor Edwards. And it was a, that was probably the hardest vote I've ever had to take. I really contemplated that social media post um, because uh, within the cannabis movement, um, specifically once we've seen that the Louisiana sheriffs had endorsed the governor for re-election, um, we don't really know what kind of promises were made, but we know um, him saying he would not sign a legalization bill was most likely one of them. He's, he's steadfastly uh, said that in his weekly radio show uh, since being elected. However, I, I, I hope that we see a uh, reversal of the federal uh, that, you know, that's, which a, that, that's, a, that's a game changer, and I'll yes, throw a, a quick, whole... quick side bit on that. Scary as it may seem, I think in the dark days of the coming presidential election, uh, the current occupant of the White House will deschedule cannabis as a way to take that off the plate of Democrats. Um, but getting back... You guys heard it first, right here on WHIV, if that's a prediction that ends up happening, Kevin Caldwell will get all the credit in the world for it. Well, yeah... Trust, trust, trust me, it's not something that, that I want to see, but it's, it's political reality. Um, but, you know, I, I as well, um, I have a stepdaughter, I have a granddaughter. Women's reproductive freedoms are very important to me. And as I was talking with a, with a close friend, you know, I said, well, listen, despite this, despite the governor's stance on his pro-life status, um, I'm, I'm going to vote for him because the other options um, are just too scary, just too scary for us. And uh, they said, you know, you need to write that down. You need to talk about that on social media because the fact of the matter is, is both of the Republican, main Republican primary runners up against 
the governor are even further, even though that can, it, it, it's hard to imagine. I mean, the fact that it was all a political trap to irritate progressive voters. Um, governor Jindal passed a comprehensive abortion ban law during when he was governor. The um, John Bell Edwards said from the beginning he was a pro-life candidate. Um, he has yet to find a pro-life bill that he has not wholeheartedly signed and endorsed. So when a lot of people got really offended by the heartbeat bill, you know, my first opinion was. Uh, Go back and look at his record, y'all. This is this is this is John Bell Edwards, and sadly, is this the Louisiana that we live in? And until we gain the ability to become the independent duchy of Orleans, which um, I have suggested, in fact, to some Jay, of our- Jay, uh, Council Member Jay Banks actually made that suggestion on my show on Resistance Radio like two and a half months ago. He said, "I may get in trouble for saying this." I'm like, "Oh, go ahead, say it. <laughs> like, pray tell." <laughs> He said, he turned uh, the volume up. <laughs> right. I lifted his microphone, right? <laughs> got it close to his mouth, turned his levels up. He's like, sometimes I think that New Orleans should secede from Louisiana. And then it was like, wow, 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 wow. You know, it was just like hitting all these like celebration <laughs> buttons and stuff. Well, you know, um, if we were to become an independent state, we would have the same population as South Dakota, North Dakota. Um, and we would hold the purse, wouldn't we? Like all of a well, sudden. Well, I mean, yes. Uh, I believe it's sixty percent of the revenues that fund the state government come from the city of right. New Orleans. And as I think Mayor Cantrell often says, if the toilets don't flush in New Orleans, the cash registers don't ring in Baton Rouge. <laughs> you know, you got to, you got to <laughs> love you, Latoya. Twenty million people come to New Orleans every year. All right, let me uh, say this. It just. Well, oh, how are we doing? Time yeah, Twenty flies. minutes, dude. All right. Oh. Let me say this. All right. One sentence. Um, uh, in three weeks, I'm going to have uh, Howie. He's one of the. Um, he's running for primary uh, on the Green Party for presidential uh, election. And I just base. I'll look his name up in one second. But let me ask you this: um, third parties in we like the Democrats are neutered in the state of Louisiana. What do we need to do to get a third party to actually do something? I think the most successful idea for getting a third party successful in Louisiana would have to be uh, more of a moderate party. It's not going to be one on either extreme because, well, on the right, we have the varying degrees of what I call y'all kaitistan Right, but um, why not, like, I mean, what did, when we're talking extreme, I mean, like, but when I'm talking about a party, I'm talking about a party that wants health care for all, that wants to raise the rates of, 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 of minimum wage, that wants to make sure that everybody has a job, that wants to make sure uh, uh, that uh, child care is available. Uh, it, it, to me, it, to me, it, these be do careful. not seem like extreme. Be careful, extreme. brother Bolshevik. <laughs> Right, when we can go up to northern Louisiana and tell people we're going to raise their, their, their incomes, we're going to raise their life, right? We're going, to, we're, we're going to make sure that they have health care for all. We're going to make sure that their roads work. You know, I, how, how to me does that seem like, I mean, if we, yeah, Howie Hawkins, I got it. Yeah, it's, it's Howie Hawkins. Thank you so much. It's who I'm going to be interviewing here in three weeks, uh, two weeks. Uh, to me, that doesn't mean that doesn't seem crazy. People refer to me as like, "Oh, you're just on the extreme left." I'm like, "Oh, I'm sorry. I just want to make sure college is free, the environment is safe, that you have health care, and that you actually have a working living wage." Well, you know, that that makes me extreme in America. That probably makes me moderate somewhere in like Northern Europe. 
it makes you a moderate in Northern Europe. It makes you a moderate on the West Coast of the United States, and more so, we're starting to see more and more in the Northeast. What we have in Louisiana, though, is a uh, people trapped with generational poverty. Yes. People All right. who yes, are yes, yes. Uh, trapped by multi-generations failure in our educational system, failure in our health system to keep All them done happy. All intentional. And, done, and, and, and environmentally. Yes. Environmentally, we have allowed, you know, people talk about, oh, well, we, we blew the opportunity to get a cyanide plant. Well, guess what? They're going to move someplace in Louis, else in Louisiana because no other state wants that kind of industry. They know the fact that they're, that that industry is going to end up poisoning the community that they live in, and they're going to be and and the the people, the LABI, for example, the the was it the Louisiana Business Institute? I'm maybe wrong on that acronym, but they're very powerful players at um, at the Capitol. It, it's all about deregulation. Uh, I mean, you know, there was a talk about allowing um, industries to self-report. Self-regulate. Yeah, self-report. Yeah. Yes, we yeah. talked about We talked that about this last week. Last week. And it's, you know, here it is. You got a group like, and I'm going to call somebody out here, okay? Taylor Energy. You know, and everybody loves Patrick Taylor. What he did with the TOPS program has been fantastic. Um, however... Uh, now, of course, Mr. Taylor is gone, so it is just run as a corporation now. But he's got oil wells that have been leaking in the Gulf of Mexico for 12 years. And it's cheaper to pay the 50 grand a year fine that DEQ is That's the cost of doing business. And, and instead of actually paying it to stop poisoning the water that we live in, we, we see, uh, what was it, the, um, uh, on the North Shore two years ago, there, there was a whole river where basically all the fish died because there was a paper plant in maybe Livingston Parish that accidentally flushed all of its chemicals into that river. Uh, and luckily, in short bursts of criminal activity like that, Mother Nature can heal herself. But we've reached a point where we have been consistently poisoning the ground and the water that we live in and that we eat out and eat and drink out of for so long. At a certain point, at what point does... Does, does Mother Nature just kind of wash our hands of us? And I think it that says humans, you got to go. And and you know we we look at uh, we have a mass extinction crisis. We have um, the sixth, yeah, the sixth in the in the history of the Earth. We're undergoing a, uh, an extinction crisis. Let me say this: I, Sorry, yeah. like time. All right, real quickly. I was um, trying to stay. No, I know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Let me just say this: if you're tuned in, you're listening to WHIV. This is Resistance Radio. My name is Mark Alderi. I have the great Kevin Caldwell. More information about his amazing organization, Common Sense NOLA, can be find at, found at commonsensenola.org. If you like what Kevin has to say, please tune into his radio program on WHIV on Wednesdays at 1 o'clock. Real quickly, because I want to spend the rest of the 15 minutes on harm reduction. What's going on with marijuana in the state? Therapeutic cannabis has been released in tincture form. Um, the way in which the Louisiana legislature set up our therapeutic cannabis program, we have the most expensive cannabis on the face of Mother Earth. It is unaffordable to all but the wealthy. <coughs> oh, really? A t- another, another example of two-tiers system here in Louisiana. It's, um, and, you know, it's sometimes I worked very hard with many other really good people. You mentioned Jacob Irving. Uh, at the top of the hour, I worked with a lot of people that worked very hard. We 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 sweated, we we bled um, to try to get through what we got. And sometimes it 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 gets quite depressing when you look at the finished product and you say, "I don't want my name associated with this. This is a failed this this 
the only way the sheriffs could come on board with supporting, which was always funny, bringing in the, the, uh, the stakeholders. You know, corporate America loves to bring, let's get the stakeholders together. Well, in Louisiana, the stakeholders for therapeutic cannabis was the Sheriff's Association, the DA's Association, and the pharmacists. Um, I, I'm sorry, but I probably did more medical training than the sheriffs and DA's did. Um, and let's also remember the reason that this happened, at least from my experience or from my observation, was that the head of the Sheriff's Association, his daughter, sadly and tragically, Allison Newman, Allison Newstrom, Allison Newstrom died of pancreatic cancer in a uh, in a way in which she uh, had uh, expressed her wishes to her father that medical marijuana and, and may that, have and, probably helped and, her and out. Pan, and pancreatic cancer is, is one of the forms of cancer that responds very well to cannabis. Sure. So it literally could, could have made a huge difference in the medical way in which she was treated. Yeah, yeah. And let me also just say that when you look at somebody like Dick Cheney and you're like, oh, you know, Dick Cheney's not bad on LGBT issues. No, it's because his daughter is gay. Right? And when you look at conservatives, they only respond to things when it happens to them personally. There is never this notion or compassion that's intrinsic in them that allows to understand these things. And so, again, I saw the sheriff the first year I was out there, and he's like, this is not happening. In the interim, his daughter dies. She expresses to him that she would like to see some medical marijuana. He comes back the next year. And I was sitting with Jacob. When he walked over to Jacob, he, uh, he shook his hand. And said, Jacob, he says, we're, we are uh, going to support this bill this year. And, and that was, and that was took, Senator, and it still Senator took Mills. five years to implement. Yeah, it, it was, and now we have the most expensive. Um, we have ten pharmacies around. So real quickly, nine, ten far, nine pharmacies around the parishes. Um, there's a, 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 short, there's a, lot there, of a shortage of doctors. 300 miles. Yes. Right. Shortage North, of doctors. North Louisiana has two doctors that will. Uh, they can only see 100 patients, or no, that that, that yeah, got that, lifted. That cap was lifted, uh, but like for example, there were certain things that, as much as we thought we we studied that law, we really thought we were doing everything right. Well, we get to implementation stage, and then we go back, and the wording was cannabis sativa, not. That the law does not include the words cannabis indica. So they can only grow in strains of cannabis that are sativa-based, which does not help a PTSD patient, which does not help a chronic pain patient. And why is all that? Because those, specifically chronic pain, is by far the most commonly used for a recommendation for therapeutic cannabis across the country. Um, it, it's, it's an effective tool. We've seen in states with robust therapeutic cannabis programs that... Um, Opioid prescriptions drop by 25%. Yes, they do. Opiate um, overdoses drop by 20%. Yes, they do. And let me give you one more. Uh, admissions to opioid uh, uh, recovery centers drop significantly as well because there's less people addicted. And, you know, and, and so that you just, you, you, that's when you can get really frustrated when you're going to the Capitol and you can see the undue influences that um, industries like Big Pharma have. And, and you, they, in the end, you know, big pharma creates profits. It doesn't work to cure patients. And, and they, they don't answer to the patients. They answer to their stockholders. And, and that, those, are the, those are the sorts of things. And, and this is kind of a great segue into harm reduction. And into, I mean, for example, on my show, one of the first guests I had on the show, it was like two years ago. And it's been awesome to be part of this family so long. 
um, was a retired NOPD police officer, was injured severely in the line of duty. Oh, yeah. This guy, was, this guy was emailing me. I remember and this. He, yes. um, and after Katrina, he ended up going out to Colorado. And, yes, 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 um, yes, yes, I remember his and, story. And, you know, his opiate addiction had really gotten completely out of hand. And, you know, and his doctor told him, he's like, go to the dispensary. He was like, you know, I'm cutting you off of opiates. So um, I'm telling you, this is probably going to be your best bet. And he's been clean for several years now. And hats off to Jerry. But you know what? When you hear his story at the Capitol, it falls on deaf ears. And so many legislators will tell you. And that this was true. Like, for example, um, what was it? Uh, a, year, a year and a half ago, when I was lobbying for DPA, we had a bill that would allow for needle exchange programs. And I, you know, having been around the Capitol, you know, you know, I read Sun Tzu, you know, I, I know my enemy, I, you know, you need not fear the outcome of a thousand battles if you know your enemy. I, you know, I knew it was an uphill battle. But, you know, instead of just doing the things that we would talk about with harm reduction for something like a needle exchange program or hopefully soon a safe injection site um, sorts, laugh of with com- me. sorts of conversation, I, I, I won't laugh because I'll start crying. Um, But, you know, so I I knew the opposition we were going into. So I would sit down with conservative lawmakers and say, man, y'all want to cut back health care costs, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, how much does the state spend in treating hep C, in treating new cases of HIV, and other illnesses that are borne by people who use needles? um, You know, you could be saving the state $25, $30 million a year just by spending... 500 grand a year to give those people that are suffering in this form of addiction access to clean needles so they're not getting themselves and the people that they're in contact with um, infected as well. And, and, and I know I'm kind of definitely but, getting into yes, your, yeah, into yeah. your purview so, there. But what you are assuming is that they actually care about the American people. And my way of looking at politicians now and lawmakers is that you don't get put in that position unless you really want to, uh, I feel that there is an element of, of uh, there is no problem in doing, you and I are operating out of a basis that we're trying to lift all of society. I think that that is not necessarily the perspective of some of our well, lawmakers. Let me, let, let, that, let, me, let me throw something out at you. Okay, I heavily contemplated running um, for the House seat for District 91. Um, one of the things that, that makes public service in the State House uh, untenable for a working class uh, New Orleanian like myself is the fact that it only pays $18,000 a year. But when I sat down with, 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 with players, with elected officials and saying, this is what I'm contemplating, you know, talk to me. The first thing out of every one of their mouth is, well, you know, you got to raise a quarter million dollars. It's like, and, so you got to raise two hundred fifty grand to get and, a job for 18K. Right. What kind of promises do you have to make there's the rub. And, and so, and, you know, and then in rural... You have to allow cyanide-making companies into <laughs> Louisiana. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's... Uh, but, you know, as we said, you know, there's generational issues. Um, but the fa- I guess with the time we have left, I, I really just want to focus in on the fact 
that harm reduction works. Yeah, so let's talk about harm. So harm reduction, so essentially, so Dr. Gee, Rebecca Gee, actually passed the needle, uh, the, the safe syringe one. or yeah, needle exchange program. Uh, I'm very uh, privileged uh, and lucky, lucky, lucky more than anything else to be married to Leon Elliott, who actually wrote the, uh, the bill or uh, was able to get the city council to pass the bill so that it was a local ordinance here because the way the bill was written, it wasn't that the whole state now because Orleans it, and Baton Rouge, well, they have if they, were if they write to adopt. right if they yeah. were to adopt it. So of course, once we became aware of that, Leon and I worked on the bill, the ordinance, and we were I mean, able. Do you know how the bill got passed though? Well, she had to fool them. She had to tell them that it was for firemen and for EMS, so they didn't actually stick them. And, so and, and the she had to fool fact, them, right? The very fact. That's a good point. That Steve Pilot, who is a former sheriff of Winsboro Parish, who's been representing that area for uh, for at least since I've been going up there. So uh, he um, he didn't read the bill. He sponsored a bill. And he didn't read it. And to the point that it appears as if he didn't ask his staff to read it. Um, because the whole thing is, well, this is just sounds so the like police Alec officers Bills. won't get stuck when people have a needle. And, you know, but, but, you know, in the end. Well, you have to see, give it to Dr. Gee for being a smart politician or whoever oh. it was that gave it to somebody that was going to just push it through without actually understanding the deeper implications of it. Abs- absolutely. But, you know, you, you've hit upon it quite a lot, is the fact is, is that we are trying to lift people up. And one of the things, nobody, when we're talking about decriminalization of drugs, okay, we're not talking about, hey, we think everybody should be out um, snorting coke and shooting up heroin, okay? No, it, it's looking at things as if we can look at, I'm going to go use some more of that corporate lingo, we can look at best practices that are being practiced in Switzerland, that are being practiced in Portugal, and what they did was they recognized the fact that drug use has been with us since the beginning of time. It will, you can, you can try like we have the last 50 years to incarcerate yourself out of a health issue, and you can watch as it is an utter failure. What you can Unless do you're trying to make money for the carceral system, and in that way, it's a well, huge $580 million or something, or $2 then, billion dollar well, success. Then, then, so. you know, I mean, is but it a ahead. conspiracy if it's really true? Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> but, I mean, like I said, you know, we got to keep that parish up in northeast right. Louisiana with that... Um, they got that bond. They got to keep the prison full. Can I just say, so that Portugal, Canada, uh, the UK, Northern Europe have seen dramatic decreases in transmission of HIV, Hep C, uh, through the use of uh, Overdoses. safe and over. Well, I'm going to get through safe injection sites. So, what are safe injection sites? So, this sounds crazy to people in America, right? Safe injection sites are places where people can go and actually inject drugs safely, right? Woo, I know. Well, hold on. Here's the deal. And, and, then the, and I go around the country giving this lecture to other doctors, and it's called evidence-based harm reduction, right? Because doctors, thankfully, still respond to data. And, and what I, my goal is to teach them that it's okay if people use drugs. You cannot judge them. But what I recognize in talking to these doctors is that their heads, they all grew up at the same time, maybe a little bit older than me. I'm 51, so doctors are about 10 years older. That's usually the oldest people that I get, right? They all came up at a time in the 80s and the 90s, just say no to drugs, dare to say no, blah, 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 blah. This is your brain on drugs, all that bull S, right, that we know about, right? And they were also... Think about the media at the time, movies, television. How did they portray a drug user? And who did they portray as a drug user? Black. Right? And so, right? And so, this is. 
So brown and black and brown communities or vulnerable communities are, you know... Uh, well, those were always the dealers. Strangely, in a lot of movies, the consumers were still the rich white people. Well, yes. But, if it was being portrayed in a positive light. Right, if it was portrayed in a positive light, right. But here's the deal. What we have seen now is not only the decimation of these um, uh, and c- the continuance of generational poverty, but around the, cu- around the world, what we've seen is a significant decline in drug use. No safe injection site has ever had an overdose. Think about that. No safe injection site has ever had an overdose. Rates of HIV and hep C go down in areas in which they're uh, 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 in, the, in the cities or in the countries in which safe injection sites exist. Because and, and the people suffering from those addictions are treated as human yes. beings. Yes, and not only that, and they, that on, is the this. first step that you yes. need. Hold to on, get Kevin. On the road and here's the deal that, that gets everybody 75% of people who go to a safe injection site in year one seek treatment for their addiction. Now, we know that addiction treatment has lots of, uh, there's a lot of relapses associated with but the fact that they're actually stepping into a safe injection site to utilize uh, safely uh, uh, will also be a significant positive predictive factor for them to ultimately get treated. Because isn't that what we want? And I tell that to doctors. You don't want people to use drugs. Great. Well, wouldn't you want to do something that has a 75% success rate in getting people into treatment? Safe injection sites are the are, are it. But what we have seen is a significant uh, bullying by uh, 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 when uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions was still in office that refused to allow any self-injection sites to open. God bless the appeals court in uh, Philadelphia, right. which yes, just jeweled today, that not right. to be a violation of the Controlled Substance Act. We, so that is a huge win. And we are like, we are... So listen, ladies and gentlemen, we need to do this again. Absolutely. Uh, give it up. Thank you. Kevin Caldwell, thank you so much. Executive Director of Common Sense NOLA. More information, commonsensenola.org. Axel, thank you so much. Uh, Scott, thank you so much. Jeff Barrow is at the, at, the, uh, at the station. Thank you. And to all of you guys here, give it up. Thank you guys so much. Uh, and coming up now uh, is going to be Mark Parody. Thank you guys. Jeff, thank you so much at the station. Kevin, thank you so much.